Let's keep worshiping by uh, turning in our Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Bonus points to whoever gets there first. It's tough to find. Remember, the cheat code on this is to turn to the book of Matthew, if you know where that is, and just turn back a couple books. That's the easiest way to get there. If you're using the, the Bible that's provided in the, in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 793. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to take that and use it today um, because you're going you're gonna to need it. <laughs> you may think at some points that I'm making this up unless you're looking at the text itself. Zechariah is that creative. So Zechariah, page 793. And as you turn there, I just want to make a quick comment on uh, how much I enjoy the, the privilege of being able to preach God's Word to you um, in this sequential fashion. I will admit that as I came to uh, our text um, today, in this book in particular, it was a daunting thing, uh, as you'll see in just a moment. I think this is actually, for many people, considered to be one of the most difficult uh, portions of Scripture in the entire Bible. And yet I'm humbled, and I know that you are as well, that this is God's Word, and we want to learn from it. I think that there would be a, a temptation to um, hit the highlights, to hit what we, we deem to be relevant and exciting and interesting and engaging. And what I appreciate is being able to serve in a congregation where the flock wants to hear all of God's Word. Uh, not just the parts that they're really familiar with. So, thank you for letting me serve in this way and for your encouraging hunger for God's truth. Let's begin by reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And this may be the most normal and familiar sounding portion of the entire book. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. In my office, I have an intriguing book entitled The Mask of Command. It's written by a military historian, and in it, he traces the stories of four different generals. In it, he tries to show that at different times and at different places, leadership, rule, authority, 
represents itself differently based on the circumstances. So he follows Alexander the Great, for example, and he calls him the heroic leader, the one who would risk his life alongside his men. This is the, the, the type of, of leader in general that's most uh, familiar to us. But then, interestingly, he follows uh, the Duke of Wellington. Now, you may not remember this guy's name from history, but just to refresh, uh, he's the one that defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. So Napoleon's basically taking over the world. This guy stops him, but he does so in a rather unconventional way. Uh, Keegan calls this gentleman uh, the anti-hero insofar as he was a true gentleman. He was, uh, yet at the same time, he was prepared to fight without all of the theatrics of Alexander the Great. His third general is uh, Ulysses S. Grant. He calls Grant the unheroic leader, which is an interesting title, because he considered himself no better than his men and made him the ideal democratic leader. So Grant just says, I'm one of you guys. I, I fight alongside you, and yet it was effective. And then the last general that he follows is probably the most controversial, but we have to admit that the guy held command in a powerful way, and that's none other than Adolf Hitler. He calls Hitler the false heroic leader, because he relied on past glory and the, at least the appearance of heroism uh, while directing his troops from miles away. He was actually a rather cowardly individual, and yet he was effective in his command insofar as he could get people to do what he wanted them to do. Uh, the point is that uh, different circumstances actually provoked people to follow leaders of vastly different styles. And I think we all can identify with these tendencies to respond to different kinds of leadership, different kinds of exhortation. If any of you have ever done any basic management training, you know that there is a difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Extrinsic is that which is outside of you. It is the proverbial carrot and the stick. The carrot entices. I'll pay you more money if you will do your job better. Or if you don't do your job better, uh, I will reprimand you or embarrass you in some way or you will lose your job. That's motivation outside of you. It works sometimes. And there's also another kind of, of leadership, though, of motivation. It's intrinsic. It's that which appeals to someone's sense of well-being, their values. The, it assumes that someone wants to grow. It assumes that someone wants to get better. And instead of trying to be harsh or heavy-handed or manipulative, it seeks to influence from the inside out. And so we respectively respond to different kinds of leadership at different circumstances in life. So a question for you. For the work of God in this season of life, where you are right now in this place, what type of leadership do you need? More extrinsic or intrinsic? I mean, we need to think about the time in which we live. We know that God has given us a mission, both in our own homes and in our own hearts and in this church and in our jobs, and yet there are societal challenges around us, indeed. I mean, we think of uh, the legislation uh, of immorality that has become rampant in our own culture, uh, the rise of societally destructive anthropological theories, some of which are even being espoused in public schools, 
or have been, at least for a while. In fact, uh, things are, are so bad in our societal age that uh, one uh, ministry that many of you are familiar with actually contacted us and asked that we would preach today particularly on sexual immorality to stand against uh, this, this tide that seems to be invading our world right now. Respectfully to that ministry, we preach on sexual immorality often, so I didn't feel like the elders didn't feel like we needed to derail our entire sermon series because of the request of an outside entity. But the point is, things are bad. What prompted that particular request was actually the legislation of um, some, some laws in Canada that took place uh, two weeks ago that make it illegal for basically uh, preachers to preach against homosexuality. Uh, if that shocks you, it already was in place at least three months ago in the continent of Australia as well. Uh, the idea is that it would probably be just, you know, right around the corner for us here. It, these are tough times in which we live. In fact, I even read somewhere uh, this week uh, that 60% of Americans assume that our very democracy is eroding. Now, I don't know how people actually determine these types of things, but I can read statistics broadly, and I think, okay, more than half of the people in the country think that the very foundation of the, of the society in which we live is eroding underneath them. It's pretty bad. We need leadership. We have physical challenges, of course. Uh, we're battling for help. I, I mean, I, I think when I look at the little, this is the only thing that I check uh, uh, compulsively. Uh, I don't look at news that often, but I do like to look at the Florida COVID numbers. It's just, it's just interesting to see. Like one week I was like, oh, wow, the, the pandemic's over. And then like literally two days later, I'm like, oh, we broke a record. <laughs> if you were to look at the, the chart right now, you would see that this Omicron variant is as high as it's ever been. Thankfully, it is uh, somewhat like a cold uh, and the death rates are low, and yet we do live in these weird times. Who would have thought two, two years ago that we would still be dealing with this? And yet it is this thing that just perpetually will not go away. And for those of us who have been inflicted with that virus or anything like it, we know the challenges of just battling for our own health. Uh, the older population and our church use a verb that younger people don't use. We call it, or they call it, doctoring. <laughs> It's a whole thing, just through a week to try to stay healthy, to try to stay alive, to try to keep yourself in check. So we have physical challenges. Uh, we know what it is to battle uh, for purity. If you're single or belonging for family, if you're not yet married, there are career and job issues, there's loneliness, and then we have our own spiritual battles on top of that, personal growth, not church growth. We look around and we ask, even on a day plagued with tornadoes and the building being relatively full, what's next here? What do we do? Do we, do we plant churches? Do we build a building? So there are things that, that infect us here and our well-being. There are the, the need for conversions, especially those of close family. Uh, there's the longing for our own spiritual fruit. It's just <clears throat> we need leadership. And so what kind? Well, I would say, friends, that if it feels like this is a unique time for unique leadership, uh, we would resonate well with the original readers of the book of Zechariah. They were facing some extremely unique challenges that called for a, a leadership that they ha had yet to see. 
You'll remember that uh, when we read the book of Haggai last week, uh, that around 520 A.D., when both Haggai and Zechariah were, were both written, that there was a, a challenging time in, in the nation of Judah because what had happened was they had been decimated as a country and taken off into captivity. And the Persian emperor had actually allowed them to come back. So there's about a million Jews on the face of the planet at this particular time. And he allows about 50,000 of them to come back to Jerusalem. And he says, rebuild your temple, rebuild your city. And so now they have to rebuild the city. Well, as they start to rebuild it, the locals in the area, the Samaritans, they don't like it. And they actually try to physically stop the building project. I mean, I, I just would want you to imagine that. They're trying to rebuild God's city, and they are physically being prohibited from doing so, to the point that after about six years, they just give up. They said, we're done. And yet God said, no, I want you to rebuild the temple. This is supposed to be the picture of my glory through the world. Get to work. And so he sends Haggai. And Haggai is the kind of leader who is very extrinsic. He's, he's very in your face. Uh, he basically says, what in the world are you guys doing living in your paneled houses, living comfortable in the suburbs of Jerusalem when the, the house of God is in ruins? He, he challenges them right up front. He says, look, extrinsically, if you'll do what you're supposed to do, God is going to shake the heavens and the earth, I mean, and, and the nations, and gold and silver will flow in from the outside. You just got to obey. He's that kind of uh, upfront, in-your-face, you know, kind of leader. But alongside him, at, at the very same time, God raises up another leader, and he's more intrinsic. Zechariah. Zechariah doesn't make a lot of strong, bold statements that are going to demand you go this way or that way. He's more subtle than that. He's going to plant ideas in your mind. He's going to force you to think and to ruminate over the ways that, that God is at work and invite you into the process, invite you to be a part. He's a unique leader for a unique time. His book is indeed unique because uh, it consists of three sections or kinds of, of literature that are largely unfamiliar to us. It, basically, the whole book is a revelation of God's work to encourage hope in our own. It's a revelation of God's work to encourage hope in our own. He's assuming that we want to do work, but he reveals that God is at work, and that's supposed to help us in our own work. But he uses this revelation in three unique ways. There's chapters 1 through 6, and they're visions. He's going to give seven and a half, that's what I'll call it, seven and a half visions, so that uh, that's one form of revelation. The next one you're more familiar with, but the circumstances are kind of weird. In chapter 7 and 8, he's going to give exhortation. So that's the next mode of revelation. And then in the last, uh, he's going to give oracles. Um, if I was doing this in a way, that's 9 through 14. If I was doing this in a way that would just kind of be easy to remember, I would call it uh, vision, exhortation, revelation, because an oracle is basically like the book of Revelation as we think about it. Now, that being said, there's 14 chapters. This is the longest of the prophets that we have covered up to this point, 
And there is no way on God's green earth that I will be able to cover this with any substance in one setting. I've struggled to do the sixth chapter and the seventh chapter and the eighth chapter, but there ain't no way (laughs) that I'm going to be able to get 14 chapters of such complex material in. So admittedly, this is getting broken into two, heads up. All we'll really have time today is to cover the visions, that first section of Revelation, and maybe the exhortations. We'll see how it goes. I'm really going to be looking at your faces to tell whether or not I need to keep moving. (laughs) But the point is, overall, it's God's revelation that He is at work so that we would have hope to remain at work ourselves. So let's look at this first section. These, these visions that instill hope in chapters 1 through 6. Now, but before, we're going to look at some of these in depth. Some of these I'll just have to give you an overview. But I want you to understand how this section works. Basically, in, in a span of one night, God, uh, through an angel, will wake Zechariah up mid-sleep, and he will uh, give him uh, these, these visions. He, he'll let him see uh, these unique things. And the way that these visions work uh, would be very similar to the way that uh, the dreams work in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You remember that. Ebenezer Scrooge is given three different dreams, and basically these things happen back to back to back, and then he's supposed to wake up the next day, and he finally gets it. Upon reflecting on the dreams, he understands what it is that he needs to do. I don't know where Dickens got that from, but I would like to assume that he stole it from the book of Zechariah, because that's exactly what happens here. But I want you to know that uh, the dreams in A Christmas Carol make way more sense on the surface than anything that happens here in Zechariah 1 through 6. I mean, I, I... you know, this is, this is the word of the Lord, so I want to speak respectfully, but I just am going to tell you, if you thought your dreams were weird, wait till you read these. Now, there's approximately, I say seven and a half, there's really seven visions, and then there's like this appendix, uh, an eighth. And the way that they work, and, and we've seen this over and over again in, in Hebrew literature, they kind of correspond with one another, and the, the, they make like a, a shape, if you will, like you've got the first vision and the seventh vision, and you've got the second vision and the sixth vision, and the, the, the center, the key to understanding all of these is right in the middle, and that's where we're going to spend our time. But I want to, at least for the sake of your own, for your own reading, help you understand what these are. All these visions disclose this one thing, that God is at work, so you can remain at work. That's what they're saying. Remember, they're in the middle of the rebuilding project. Uh, He is prophesying at the same time as Haggai. And at this point, if we follow our history, and we can know to the date, by the way, I mean to the very day, what they were doing, what was going on. It says it's in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So we're talking December 520 B.C., by this point, we know that the, the, that the Ju- Judeans at that particular place had already started the reconstruction project. They're in the middle of it. And it's in the middle of, of the rebuilding, the tearing down of the old, the replacing for the new, that they are going to get these visions. And these visions actually have an impact on their life. 
They're actually supposed to think about these things as messages from God, contemplate on them, to ruminate them. These, these ideas are going to stick in their minds and so remind them that God's at work. Don't give up. Keep going. And so God says the same to us. In the first vision, we actually have a man who's standing among these these myrtle trees, uh, trees that are unique to that area, about seven to eight foot tall at most. And there's four horses that actually come, and uh, it, they, you know, he asks them, what, what are these horses? And he says, these are the ones that God has sent to patrol the earth. You see that in verse 10. But then he will basically explain that the, the horses have reported, or the people on the horses have reported that everything's well, all is well. There is, there is peace right now in the land. You can keep building. You don't have to worry about more national unrest. In fact, God is going to prosper you, so keep building. You need to move to the second. The second one is, is, pretty, is even more strange, because at first the, the prophet lifts his eyes in verse 18, and he sees four horns. Just horns. Think like a rhinoceros horn without the rhinoceros. <laughs> There's four horns that are there. And then as you read through that, I'll let you scan it on your own. Uh, additionally, there will be these four craftsmen or silversmiths, blacksmiths that will come up behind them. And the blacksmiths will destroy the four horns. <laughs> now, the, the interpretation is simple. Horns in the ancient Near East were a symbol for power and authority just like they are on a rhinoceros. And so also they represented world powers that had devastated uh, the, the people of Israel. And he's saying, hey, they have actually dominated you, but they will eventually be destroyed. God will eliminate threats. Keep building. Don't worry about this thing getting derailed again. God is at work. He will protect. Vision 3, a man with a measuring line. You see that in verses 1 through 13. And so basically what you have is a glorified surveying project. And this guy starts running his lines to measure out this new city of Jerusalem. And then as, in essence, he gives up because he realizes that Jerusalem's going to be so big and so populated that his measurements won't be enough. In fact, they won't even be able to build a wall. God will have to be the wall for them because they're going to be so blessed. So this is an interesting thing as well. Again, you're noting that, all right, I know you guys think that you've got to build this on your own and that you're going to have to populate this place, but here's what I want you to know. God is going to work in such a way that one day his chosen place will be so filled with his people that your walls will actually get in the way. He will have to be the protection, the wall for you. Are you seeing how these are trying to encourage the people? I'm giving you this fast-track version, by the way, because I tried to, to talk these out with my daughter on a walk yesterday, just as a test case, because she asked me, she says, hey, so what are you studying this week? I'm like, oh, interesting you asked. <laughs> and so I timed it. I knew the particular place I was going to get some, a cheeseburger, <laughs> and uh, I knew that it was a 10-minute walk. And I was still talking to her up to the restaurant about the visions, and I'm like, nope, no way. <laughs> there is no way I can explain to everybody tomorrow all of these. But I am, though, giving you the gist of the vision. You will be able to go back and read and understand, like, oh, I see how this would encourage them to keep working. But we've hit one, two, and three. Now I want you to notice the two central visions. We'll give these a little more time. Vision number four begins at chapter three. And in this one, we're going to see the cleansing of the high priest. And this is a stunning picture. 
Because of the people and, and the temple having been desecrated, and because there is no like, real capacity for them to go through the sacrifices that made them clean as a people, they're thinking, we're dirty, we're defiled before God. I, I don't even know that if we can build the temple. I mean, we, have, we, we are unclean ourselves. How can we build this holy house? But, but notice this vision. It says, then, verse 1, he showed me Joshua, the high priest. So don't think Joshua back in the book of Joshua. This is a high priest named Joshua. We met him back in Haggai. He's standing before the angel of the Lord. It's a heavenly scene. And notice this, and Satan, or the adversary, is standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, we don't know what Satan is accusing him of yet, but it becomes clear in verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, O adversary. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It's not this, speaking of Joshua, who's representing the nation as the priest, it's not this a brand plucked from the fire? So I want you to imagine that you know, you've got this, this scorched piece of wood that's been rescued. He says, I, I've rescued him out of the fire. Look at verse 3. Now, here's what we see he was accused for. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. I think we're uh, far enough away from lunch for me to be real with you about what the word filthy means. In its noun form, sometimes it refers to excrement. Sometimes it refers to vomit. When, when you're talking about a, a priest standing before God in filthy garments, we're not just saying, oh, he had a, a ketchup stain on his robe. This is defiling, disgusting. It, it would bring on the, just the absolute uh, revulsion of God himself. No way would a priest ever stand before the presence of God with these types of things stuck upon him. And, and it's imaging here that, that the nation like felt just this unclean before God. They felt dirty. And, and notice what the angel said to those who were standing before this priest. This is beautiful. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. We see this in the New Testament uh, regularly where we talk about being clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's an idea that's actually taken here from Zechariah chapter 3. God promised that he would fully and finally remedy their sin situation. They knew that they had sinned. They knew that they had messed up. They knew that they were filthy before God Almighty. And yet the text here says, I know that your institution itself is messed up. I mean, if the priest is standing in filthy garments before God Almighty, what do the people look like? And you know what the text is making clear? You don't fix this problem. I will fix this problem. I will make you pure before me. And he says that to Joshua as the high priest, and that was to assure the people that he would restore them fully and finally as well. He would cleanse them of all the filth of their sin as well. They could be right before him, but the text doesn't stop there. It doesn't just speak of Israel in verses 1 through 5 as a nation represented by Joshua, but notice verses 6 through 10. He then begins to project 
a larger priestly figure who will secure purity for his people. Notice, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. But hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Two things here. My servant, a messianic term used all throughout the prophets generally, not just the twelve, and then the branch. Now, when we think of a branch, we typically think of that which sticks off the side of a tree and is already established But the word branch here can also be translated the shoot, (laughs) that new life that is represented. Uh, When, If you've ever seen a tree that has been cut down and that is struggling to come back to life again, uh, that new sprig that comes up out of what seems to be dead, when he is saying, the branch will come, I will bring him and he will do something amazing. Verse 9 says, for behold, on a stone that I have set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes, Basically, the foundation stone of the temple, it was to represent God's omniscience that he sees everything and knows everything. He says, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Here's the promise. I will send my chosen servant, my representative. I will send the Messiah. I will send the branch. And when he comes and finishes the work that he comes to do, he will remove all sin in a single day. Friends, the the first five verses just promise the prospect of purity. The the last five here actually say that it will indeed happen in a single day. And it did. God's servant, the branch. Our Lord Jesus would come. And he would take on sin and all of its stains. And it would be totally expunged as God would pour out his righteous wrath upon him on the cross. So fully satisfied, by the way, that he would rise again three days later, showing that the payment had been fully paid, that the sins had been fully atoned for, and that purity, righteousness, would now characterize all who would organize themselves under him as opposed to Adam. There is purity in Christ. He has provided it. And this, friends, is to encourage you to keep working for the Lord. I I want you to, 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 to understand the significance of this as we contemplate our effectiveness in God's service when we view ourselves as unclean. Think back with me. This is going to be painful, but just hang with me. Think back with me to the last time you just really blew it. I'm talking about, you know, that kind of sin that you don't confess in small group. The stuff you keep tucked under the vest. The the stuff that you wouldn't even want your spouse to know. The thing that you hope to God that no one ever finds out. Those things that stain the soul deeply. When that took place, how excited invigorated and invested were you in the work of God at that time? It's an obvious answer. We pull away in those moments of perceived impurity because we're like, no, I'm not worthy. I can't. We just run. We just flee. 
This is actually a hindrance to God's work. Some people, for some reason, actually think, you know what, God's people do their best work when they feel really, really guilty all the time. No, they do their worst work. In fact, that's why David would pray in Psalm 51 after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, like, cleanse me, purify me, so that sinners will be converted to you. I know that as long as I feel dirty, I can't do the work. I won't proclaim the gospel. I I don't want to engage people in ministry. I don't want to challenge other people in their sanctification. I don't want to show up at church and be transparent. I don't want to be involved in the work of God when I feel like he's got something against me. And so the text says, you're pure. You're, You're clean. Stay engaged in the work. All is well. The sin has been purified by God's chosen representative. Keep building It's a good thing to think about. Let that image of, of the priest with the dirty clothes, who was given the clean clothes, just ruminate on that some and think, that's me. In Christ, that's me. I'm, I'm clean. I'm pure. There's another vision right at the heart of this cluster of visions, depending on whether you count seven or eight. But the next one is in chapter four. And this one blows my mind. You're really going to need to stretch your imagination here, folks, because the angel talks to him, and he's going to introduce to him uh, this contraption that, uh, it, that we've never seen before. <laughs> so it, this is a new invention, and if you're looking at uh, the first few verses there, basically you've got a, a lampstand, a golden lampstand. All right, so this is a thing that holds lamps. Some people try to make it a menorah, but it doesn't seem to be that. It's all of gold. Okay, so you've got this one lampstand, this thing that holds lamps, and above it is a bowl. And on top of the bowl, there are seven lamps with seven lips. <laughs> I can't even describe this to you. I tried to, I tried to like sketch this out like mentally. I, thankfully, some study Bible I came across this week drew a picture of it, and I thought, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I should have put it on the screen. Let me give you the overall point. You've got seven lamps with these lips that are receiving oil from an overflowing bowl. Now, you need to understand, uh, we don't use lamps that often these days, but they require oil and a wick. (laughs) So they need oil to keep burning. And basically, you've got this bowl overflowing with oil that's dripping into all of these lamps, keeping this thing going. And then it gets better. Because above the bowl that's overflowing with oil into the lamps are two golden pipes, not kidding, it's in the text, with golden oil flowing through them, and the pipes are attached to two olive trees. Now, as crazy as that may sound, the image is actually pretty clear. If you've got two golden pipes filling up a bowl, which is filling up these seven lamps, it's not going to run out of oil. It's got everything that it needs. Those lights will keep burning because the trees will keep supplying an overflowing abundance. Now, with that being said, I'm just giving you that imagery. I I want you to see uh, the real nature of Zechariah here because he's struggling just as much as we are. It says uh, in verse 4 of chapter chapter 4, And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? (laughs) What is this? he's asking he doesn't know then the angel this is beautiful the angel who talked with me answered and said to me do you not know what these are and I love his honesty I said no my lord (laughs) that's why I asked I don't know then he said to me 
This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, graced it. Friends, this is beautiful because you have this picture of this thing of basically it's a perpetual, not motion machine, but a perpetual energy machine. It will never run out of supply. And so with that picture in mind, Zerubbabel says, what in the world is this? And he says, look, this is what I want you to know. You tell Zerubbabel, who's leading this building project, God's resources are inexhaustible. It is not by might, it is not by strength, but it is by me, says the Lord of hosts. I am the one who will finish this job. It is not going to take your ingenuity, it is not going to take your resources, it is not going to take your strategy, it is going to take reliance upon me, myself, and I as Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the one who is in control of all powers, both cosmic and political. I am the one who will finish the project. In fact, he wants him to be so confident in this, he wants him to be so confident in God's never-ending supply that he speaks to this proverbial mountain and says, be removed, be gone. Whatever obstacle may stand in our way, it will be decimated because we are working with divine resources here. We didn't sing it today because I didn't even think about it till this morning, but one song that we often sing here at our church was written by Keith and Kristen Getty several years ago, and it's simply entitled, By Faith. And then it tells the stories of all the wonderful things that God has done as his people have depended upon him by faith. And yet the last verse, and frankly, I hate to admit this, we sing it, but I never really understood the last verse. I mean, I think I kind of got it, but I... I didn't totally, because the last verse reads, By faith this mountain shall be moved, and the power of the gospel shall prevail. And I just always thought, yeah, I guess they just needed a metaphor for difficult things, and so they made up this thing about a mountain being in the way. <laughs> but indeed, this was what Jesus would pick up when he says, you know, faith, a grain of a mustard seed, would even move a mountain. This is coming straight from the book of Zechariah. He's saying, you think of the most gnarly obstacle that you can imagine to the work of God succeeding, and it will be removed. The power of the gospel will prevail. God's work will get done. I mean, we are given an impossible task, friends. I mean, we're called to make disciples of the nations. We're called, listen to this, you're going to love this, you're called to be like Jesus. So, like, that's the standard of success, the Son of God. And that's what you're supposed to be like. That's what I'm supposed to be like. Impossible. Disciples of the nations? Some of us are struggling with just our own discipleship, much less making discipleship disciples of the entire world. Impossible. There's no way. How do we do these things? And so we remember, not by might, not by strength, but my by spirit, says the Lord. God is getting the work done, whether it be evangelism, uh, the challenges of evangelism, or godly homemaking, or your personal sanctification, or, or what we need here for, for church planning, or, or sending missionaries out to places unknown, or the societal impact. I mean, the world is, is cr- 
crumbling around us, and what are we going to do about it? It's not by might, not by strength, but my, by my Spirit, says the Lord. He is enabling this thing. And so God promises to provide. This keeps them moving. Let me give you the last three visions. Vision six is a flying scroll. This one actually isn't too hard for us to imagine. Have you ever been at the beach and you're sitting there and then all of a sudden a plane comes by and it's bringing like one of those banners, you know, like a huge ad? <laughs> now, we get to imagine that, but I, for, I would think for, you know, probably 2,000 or 2,900 years, people weren't able to really imagine this, <laughs> but we can. So there's this flying scroll, and this one's interesting because it, uh, if you do the math, it's 15 by 30 feet. It's pretty big. And on the front side of the scroll is basically God's commands against um, taking his name in vain, uh, blasphemy. Uh, It particularly uh, calls out like the first four uh, verses of the Decalogue uh, where where people were swearing uh, falsely. And then on the other side is the command not to steal. And what this, this scroll does is it goes out into the land and it destroys everyone who is blaspheming God and swearing falsely and everyone who is uh, stealing. Now, the image, as graphic as it may be, is actually saying God will purify his people. He will purify his people. Vision 7 is, is, is probably, I think, the strangest. It's a woman in a basket. Uh, this is chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Anyway, the woman in the basket represents evil. And what happens is, um, like, she kind of pops up out of the basket. The angels shut the basket. They put lead on top of it so that she can't get out. And then, again, get ready for this, folks. Uh, two women with stork wings come out of nowhere and whoosh the basket away and take it off to the land of Babylon and then, like, fasten it there so that it can't go anywhere. I, I see the disbelief on some people's faces. But I want you to know that this is his dream, not mine. <laughs> but your dreams are rarely much better. But there is a point because he explains it. He says, the woman represents the extant sin that you guys picked up from exile, and I'm going to make sure that it stays where it belongs. You will not be characterized by this sin anymore. And the last one, vision eight. Four chariots again. It started with four horses. It ends with four horses but not to be confused with the four horsemen of the book of Revelation. You see it in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Basically, these chariots go out to patrol the earth, and they ensure that God brings peace and rest to Israel. And the point to all these, the flying scroll, the woman in the basket, the four chariots, is this. Keep building. Keep building. I will purify you. Keep building. I will ensure that there is peace and rest. You will be able to finish the job. But if we're confused about what all this means, there's a bonus. There's, I called it seven and a half. I don't really know, commentators don't even know how to qualify verses 9 through 15. It's not exactly a vision, but it is a mental picture of something. And in it, you have these, these exiles who come, look at verse 10. Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedidiah, or Jediah. And they've come from Babylon And they come to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. This is the priestly house. And God says, take from them silver and gold and make a crown. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And in the meantime, the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Now, if we're um, often very unaware of ancient Near Eastern Israeli uh, political structures. But there was, to make it crystal clear, a separation of powers. God ruled, but then when actually the people asked for a king, he said, fine, I'll let you have a king. You will have a king under my rule. But at the same time, they also had a priest. The priest was in charge of the religious stuff, and there's a high priest. And then the king was in charge of the political stuff. But there was a tight line, friends, between the two. You did not cross the line. I mean, we talk about the separation of powers in our own country. There's an executive and legislative and judicial branch. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if, if Joe Biden on Monday walked up into the Supreme Court and donned a robe and actually sat as the chief justice? I mean, like, it's, it's just not, you can't even imagine it. You, you wouldn't even think that's impossible. Nobody would ever do it. That's ridiculous. And yet that's what happens here. There's going to be a merging of the two powers that the people have never seen before. In fact, one time, one stinking time, somebody tried it. His name was Uzziah. He was the king of Israel. He was prideful. And he said, you know what? Why don't I just take on the priestly role as well? And as soon as he stepped into the temple to try to enact the role of the priest, God struck him with leprosy. He says, nope, there will not be a priest and a king who rule as one until now. Here's how all the visions end. I want you to fashion this gold and this silver crown, and I want you guys to put this thing on Joshua the high priest and let him wear it just for a little while because I want the people to know that there is one who will come who will exercise not only religious authority, but political authority in one. He will be a priest. He will be the king. His name is the branch, my servant, the Messiah. And then he said, take the, take the crown off of him, put it in the temple, so that it could be a perpetual reminder to you that one day one will come who will exercise religious authority and political authority over my people. Here's how all the visions end with this parable. One is coming who will indeed rule and bring about all that God requires of you. He will rule perfectly in a way that none of the other rulers have ever ruled. He will secure righteousness for you in a way that none of the other high priests ever could. Ultimately, their hope in that building project wasn't in the brick and the mortar and the political temperature of the times and the weather, but it was going to be in the one that God would send to finish the project, the priest king. The Messiah, the ruler. Here's your hope, Judeans. Trust in the one that God will send. Trust in the one whom we know to be God's own son. And so we find ourselves full circle to the scriptures that we read earlier. 
Remember those questions that were asked in Matthew chapter 16? Jesus has done all these miracles, and everybody's wondering who he is, and so he pulls his disciples aside, and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? Who, who do people think that I am? And some people thought he was Elijah. Some people thought that he was this prophetic representative that, that would be powerful. And yet, Peter answers correctly, and he says, you are the Christ, the branch, the Messiah, God's chosen one. And in confessing that, he says, you're right. And upon this confession, upon what you just said, I will build my church. Upon the recognition of this reality that I'm the one that finishes the project, the project will get done. Friends, I know this seems abstract to you, and our minds in their little neat Western boxes don't fit well seven and a half visions. Yet the message is clear. At the heart of these is one who will provide righteousness and one who supplies everlasting rule. At its very end, we find one who is both the perfect priest and the perfect king. And he is imploring his people, keep building, keep doing what it is that you need to do because I will finish the project through my son. And he has. Christ has indeed already secured uh, this purity for his people through his death and resurrection. And we know, friends, that he promises to return and finish the power aspect. He will rule, he will reign. Your work is not in vain. It isn't about like stirring yourself up more, working harder, trying harder. This gets us back to what we talked about two weeks ago, the gentle yoke of Jesus. The hardest thing in the world is just to keep relying on him, to stay faithful and rely on him, to be under the yoke and to do the work, but also to rest in him. We do need to finish here. I, I leave you with these words from Francis Schaeffer. If you're not familiar with him, he was an American theologian, philosopher, um, in many ways an apologist, a brilliant thinker, popular in the 60s and 70s. And he, he wrote several books that are immensely popular, but one of his little-known books is uh, ironically titled, No Little People. And there are a few lines in here that I think sum up the, the message of this portion of Zechariah. Listen to Schaefer. The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus that surrounds us. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. Listen to this. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually, corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Do you hear what he's saying? The biggest problems that we face, friends, are not outside us, but within us. 
the story as a potency that we have just to, to make ourselves the hero of the story as opposed to consciously relying upon the one that God himself would send. I mean, in their case, this would be them expectantly looking to the return of the Messiah as they continue to put brick upon brick and finish that wall, to finish that temple. But for us, what does it look like to consciously rely on the Messiah? It is, friends, to throw ourselves upon the means that he has provided, the means by which we depend upon Christ and Christ himself. And these have been historically identified in three categories. The Word of God, prayer, and the people of God. Your expression of allegiance and dependence to Christ Almighty, God's chosen representative, is seen in those three categories. The way that you depend on the Word of God, not just preached on Sunday, but in what other, whatever, ways, whatever other ways you can get it, taking in God's Word, praying, depending upon Him personally, crying out to Him for that which you need, and would I add corporately? That's why we, we pray so much together as a church, because we need Christ to work among us and through us. And then interestingly, the people of God, the church. That is a means of grace. That is an expression of dependence. And Jesus himself is saying, I need other people correcting me, challenging me, comforting me. You know, look around for it. This, these people that are here today are the hands and feet of Jesus. This is what it looks like to depend upon God's chosen representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. If it's just the word and prayer, it's too mystical. It's not tactile. If it's just the church, it's too human. It's not divine. You need word, prayer, church, and say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Till then, I am trusting that you will get the job done. You are at work. As strange as these visions may seem, they all have one thing in common. God is at work, therefore we must remain at work. And so, friend, I, I just encourage you to actually reflect upon these today. The call to action is clear. Keep working. But what will sustain this? Extrinsic motivation? Not in this case. It's intrinsic. And here's what you need to meditate on. Through God's chosen Messiah, you're clean. He's strong. All is well. And success is sure. Just keep working. I want to close with a prayer that comes straight uh, from the Valley of Vision. It's titled Unchangeable Jehovah, but it's one of my favorite in the book because it just summarizes that expression of dependence upon God's divine resources. And I pray that these words would be yours as well. In fact, I will do my best in this moment to actually close this in prayer using this, and I'll try to on the fly change the pronouns. <laughs> so instead of it being an autobiography, autobiographical prayer it can be a corporate one for us listen pray with me and then we'll sing a closing song of hope in christ
unchangeable Jehovah. When we are discouraged in our ministry and full of doubts of ourselves, fasten us upon the rock of your eternal election. Then our hands will not hang down and we shall have hope for ourselves and others. You know your people by name. And you will, at the appointed season, lead them out of a natural to a gracious state by your effectual calling. And this is the ground of our salvation, the object of our desire, the motive of our ministry. Keep us from high thoughts of ourselves or our work, for we are nothing but sin and weakness. In us no good dwells. And our best works are but sin. Humble us to the dust before you. Root and tear out the poisonous weed of self-righteousness. And show us our utter nothingness. Keep us sensible of our sinnership. Sink us deeper into penitence and self-abhorrence. Break the dagon of pride and pieces before the ark of your presence. Demolish the babble of self-opinion, and scatter it to the wind. Level to the ground our Jericho walls of a rebel heart, and then grace, grace will be our experience and cry. We are a poor, feeble creature when faith is not an exercise. Like an eagle with pinioned wings, grant us to rest on thy power and faithfulness and to know that there are two things worth living for, to further thy cause in the world and to do good to the souls and bodies of men. This is our ministry, our life, our prayer, our end. Grant us grace that we should not fail. Amen.